Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Better Movement Podcast. This is Todd Hargrove. This podcast is listener-supported, so if you want to show your support, you can become a subscriber at toddhargrove.substack.com. My guest in the podcast today is John Keeley. John is a senior lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire at the Institute for Coaching and Performance. I've been reading John's research for several years now, and his papers are incredibly fun to read and very interesting. He's written on a wide variety of subjects like running and coordination and periodization and the science of smooth movement. Uh, What I really like about his writing is that he's always relating uh, these small issues to very big ideas or grand unifying theories like complex systems or evolution or stress and adaptation. And his perspective is very broad. So he makes lots of interesting connections to seemingly unrelated topics. Uh, In his paper on smoothness, he's talking about Supreme Court free speech debates about pornography. He's got an article about periodization where he's writing about Henry Ford's theories of efficient car production. And he kind of puts these things together in very interesting ways. When John agreed to do the podcast, I was really psyched to talk with him about a whole bunch of different topics, but we got uh, very focused on one topic, how to be a coordinated and robust runner. Uh, In John's view, running performance and injury is far more about coordination uh, than we usually think. Uh, So in the podcast, we talked about many topics, including the neural hierarchies governing coordination, ranging all the way from Uh, the top of the nervous system, the very smart motor cortex, down to uh, the dumb reflexes down at the bottom, what neural degeneracy means and how that's different from redundancy, the role of variability in performance and injury uh, prevention, how fatigue and aging affect variability and coordination, why I strain my hamstring in my last soccer game and what that has to do with coordination, how to train fast versus slow reflexes, the role of perturbation in training coordination, and what John thinks about the work of Franz Bosch. We could have gone on for a lot longer, and I had a lot more questions for John, so I plan to ask him back uh, sometime in the near future. I think you'll really enjoy this. All right, John, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Well, my pleasure, Todd. Good to finally uh, finally meet you, if not in person, at least virtually. Yeah, yeah, virtually. Well, that's all we got these days, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Huh? <laughs> yeah, even my Seattle friends, I you know, I I don't see them in person anymore. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. But um, okay, let's get right into it. Let's talk about running. You you've got three great papers on running, or probably more, but I've read at least three. You've got one called "Robust Running Ape" and another one about. Uh, the uniqueness of human running, and they look at running from an evolutionary perspective, and they talk about the all the amazing coordination that's involved in running on two legs with a brain that's six feet from the ground, and you know how we're we're you know we're pretty crappy runners in terms of speed and agility, but we're really 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 good uh, in terms of endurance. And um, you know, I like about these is that. They, you know, we kind of take for granted that running takes a lot of coordination because we don't have to think that much about how to coordinate our running, you know, the way we would 
like something more complex, like a golf swing or playing the violin. We need lessons. We need coaching. We need to think about it. We're really aware of failures in our coordination, but running takes a tremendous amount of coordination and it's incredibly complex. And I'd like you to kind of, I'd like to kind of start work through that. Uh, and maybe, maybe you could start us off with talking about like the basic neural hierarchy that's involved in getting us to run with coordination, kind of like from the top of my brain, the top of my nervous system, where I'm kind of thinking about where to run and what to do and my conscious attention and the bottom of it, where you've just got almost kind of these reflexive reflexes and all the different levels talking to each other, like at the spinal cord, maybe like a brief sketch kind of outline of these different levels and how they communicate and kind of get the job done. Uh, great. So uh, I was going to say an easy one to start off, but I, I, I would mean <laughs> yeah, it's only take a half an hour to lecture. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the first thing I'd say is like, I spent a lot of time working in track and field uh, and I was interested in coordination solely from the perspective of how do we make it better? How do we retrain it post-injury? Uh, is there any way we can assess when the wheels are starting to come off, subsequent to fatigue, pre-injury? So it was a very, very practical approach. And I spent a lot of time you know, thinking about how we can train it, how we can make it better. And then when I dived into the research, I think in the sports science, sports sciences, the, the research seemed a little superficial and I nearly had to go a bit deeper. And, and that's where the evolutionary rationale started to come through. It wasn't that I was, you know, an evolutionary uh, scientist in any way. It was just that, things started to make a lot of sense to me from an evolutionary level. And although we don't think of running as a complex skill, it's, it's something that we seem to learn without any effort. But if you look at it through another lens, actually there's a lot of effort that go in, goes into it. Because we're learning to control our bodies, stand, stabilise in a single leg, in a walk, in a jog, climbing up the stairs. We actually spend years and years developing those skills and layering on those, layering those skills on top of uh, more basic, previously acquired uh, movement skills. So, for example, you know, as a baby, it's all, we're trying to get up, we're trying to bounce, we're trying to stabilize, we're trying to get control, we're getting very noisy signals from our periphery. We don't know how to make sense of them. But gradually, our motor cortex is starting to, through experience and experiment-led experience, we're starting to calibrate motor cortex to motor units in the periphery. And that process takes a long time. Um, in this kind of you know deep dive, you come across things like in, in research and walking, like we think of walking, well, you learn to walk and that's it, right? But walking keeps improving until you're, I think it's your mid-20s, maybe early 20s, but it continues to improve. Now, we obviously don't see that, but you measure it and find enough scale and you see that it, that's the case. And then at the other end of life, there's the opposite. There's that 
you know, there's that gradual degradation that's invisible to us, but 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 begins to happen. So there's a simplicity there, but that simplicity is founded on, you know, how many steps. You know, God only knows a, a huge number of steps, a huge number of uh, evidence-driven, I'll do this and this will be the outcome experiments. Where your brain is making a prediction, uh, if I want to move forward, this is what I need to do, this is what I need to activate, this is how stiff I need to be around my knee, my ankle, my hip, etc., etc. This is my result, I learn. Now, get back to your question around the levels. I don't know if anyone has a, a good answer to that, but from a, a clinician perspective or a coach perspective or a conditioner rehabilitator perspective, yeah, I think you know we could divide it up into three very basic ones. There's, there is your brain. There is specifically your motor cortex. That's where your signal or sorry, your, your command, if you like, emerges, um, ricochets down, God only knows how it's processed and treated on the way down, down through your spinal cord. In your spinal cord, obviously, and I'm, I'm sure your listenership is well aware of this, the spinal cord isn't just a, a conduit. There's all types of processing that goes on through there. So that, that signal is refined to context. Um, out to the motor unit, pings the motor unit. And then as a final level, there is, if you like, just our structural design, the, the way, I guess the foot is the best example, the way a foot will, will collapse under pressure, the foot will dampen out a lot of movement errors. It will, you know, it's designed to to function as a, a dampener of things you don't want to happen and a promoter of things you do want to happen in terms of uh, force transfer. So I'm going the very, very long way around to say multi-level layered control. Obviously, there's a, a driver in terms of your brain making a prediction. This is what will happen if I do this or this is the outcome I want. What do I need to action to do that? Sends that signal, but just like the CEO of a company, uh, the people underneath uh, underneath that CEO need to interpret those orders, finesse them a little bit to context and action them. I'm not sure if I hit your question accurately there, so oh, please let me know if just, I did. That's just what I'm talking about. Um, and, and, and all of the neural organization that, that executes the command, uh, it's not this repetitive... Uh, pattern of neural organization that happens the same way every time. Uh, tell us about the variability of those neural patterns. And uh, also uh, the word degeneracy. In one of your papers, I like that word. Well, the word degeneracy, I actually don't like the word because it makes me think of like degenerate, uh, you know, the other meaning of the word. So, I, so it's always kind of uh, throws me off. But you've got something in there where you said there's a difference between degeneracy and redundancy. And those are related terms. Can you tell us a little bit about why, you know, how you connect up variability, degeneracy, and robustness? Okay, all right. That is a, a, a challenging question, but let me have a well, go. They're all, they're all going to be <laughs> So robustness, degeneracy, and variability. Okay. So, again, 
I'm not particularly mad about the term degeneracy. It, I, I think it's a, a logical replacement of the term redundancy. So people will be familiar with the concept of redundancy. But if you look at the academic, academic literature, at least the more contemporary stuff, then what you'll see is that redundancy tends to define when uh, units of the same thing perform the same action in different permutations. Basic example from our perspective, if, if we look at a, a muscle compartment and there's lots of muscle fibers or motor units, I can get the same, let's call it force output from that muscle by pinging different motor units. So I can get the same outcome from a population of the same type of thing, i.e. Gotcha. motor units, muscle fibers, but I can do it in different permutations. And we do that in different permutations all the time. So again, without getting into kind of the madness of scientific definitions, that's redundancy. Degeneracy is when you can action the same outcome using very different entities. So I I can get, for example, in running, I can get the same, I can maintain stride length, stride time, speed, by doing all kinds of different things. I'm just going to change the angle of my shank, uh, change contribution of this muscle or this muscle compartment or this other muscle up top, change my posture slightly, uh, stiffen up my foot so it deforms in a different way. I can do all kinds of different things to maintain the, uh, the same or a similar output. So I actually... Although I don't like the term, I think it would be simpler to just call it, you know, options or something like that. Oh, no, it's a good scientific term. It's just it sounds like something bad, you know, like degenerate. Like yeah, degenerate, sure, like that. sure. I think I've got a, a, a kind of a metaphor popped into my head that helps me explain, understand the difference between redundancy and uh, degeneracy. So the re- like if you had a soccer team, if you had two strikers, you know, one would be redundant to the other. Uh, or, or if you had like four strikers. Uh, but if sure. you had, but if you had uh, a striker that can score, but also a defender that could score, if the if the striker wasn't scoring, or a midfielder that could score, or all the different players could like perform different functions, as opposed to being highly specialized, that would be like a degenerate, like total football soccer team. Absolutely, I, and I, with my practitioner hat on, I find that concept of degeneracy uh, good, and I know I'm kind of shark on jumping way, way ahead, but just while it's in my head, if, if it's okay. Yeah. If if we're working with uh, people who are coming back from injury or serial injury, or maybe they're getting to the back end of their career and their, their number of viable options to execute certain movements has diminished because of, you know, prior trauma, uh, prior overuse, et cetera, et cetera. I think degeneracy is a good way to look at things. The practitioner is faced with the question, how can I improve their range of options? And it sounds like a very easy question to answer. Well, you do this type of training or or that type of training. But then if you look at the type of training people do, we tend to box it off quite a lot. I'll do some strength training. 
And then movement training is something different that sits in a different box at a different time of the week in a different place over here. Or we'll do some therapy stuff or whatever it might be. But I think a lot of the time with, with injuries, we, we're kind of so educated into thinking in sequences and boxes and formulas. And I do this first and then I do this and then I do this, that it kind of closes our mind to the, the full spectrum of options open to us. Like there's, if you were, if, if there's an athlete standing in front of me and they have, you know, persistent pain slash dysfunction or both in their knee, I actually have a huge spectrum of um, potential options open to me to, to try and change their experience. But if we go to our literatures or our conventions, it always seems like there's just, well, you can do a bit of this or a bit of this, or it's recommended you do this and you do this. Whereas in actual fact, well, actually there's a whole load of things we can do there. I hope that made a degree of sense if you want to come back where it didn't. No, 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 I appreciate that. So um, with the, um, you know, because we have so many different ways uh, to get a particular task done, there's so, well, that's a source of uh, robustness. That's a source of strength, right? Yes. So I, I kind of took a, a little sidestep there with your question. Your original question was degeneracy and how that feeds into robustness. Yeah. So the, the capacity to have all these options to accomplish the same outcome in multiple different ways is the source of our robustness, essentially. Right, right. Because it means, and if we go to a running example, and when you run, you never take the same stride twice on a treadmill, on a flat surface at the same speed at multiple different um, scales of measurement, there's always a, a variation. There's always every stride is executed in a different way. And there's a you know eminently sensible evolutionary purpose behind that. And it is it is a way of distributing stress, mechanical stress, load. So if these motor units ping when I'm making this stride, a, a, a different population will ping the next time. Uh, I'll change the stiffness of my knee. I might change my posture slightly. And it's all, it's not just, it, it's certainly not random variability. It's organized. Uh, if people know the term fractal, it's kind of uh, replications of the same pattern, but in different permutations. And it is a, it's an energy saving device. It's, things, it's, it's you putting your workforce on shifts, essentially. So that's how degeneracy uh, acts as a platform for robustness. And then how that robustness and the load sharing among all those uh, neural and biological structures, how they manifest as variability, again, at multiple scales. Can you tell us a little bit about how um, uh, the variability of, let's say, running, how the coordination of running changes as you progress from being the novice to being an intermediate to being an expert uh, in terms of, you know, the way you're getting things done and like the narrowness of the groove that you're moving? And you've used that analogy before about moving through grooves that are kind of narrow or wide and 
the role variability plays there in helping you, you know, at the same time, optimize your, your goal, but, but not get hurt. Perfect. Um, so the way I think of it is there is, if we take a, what we conventionally think of as a simple movement like running, we all have a bandwidth of variability. Now, it's not fixed and it will change if you're fatigued. Uh, I think, although there's not a load of evidence, uh, although there is some, if you're psychologically, psycho-emotionally stressed, variability changes. But the obvious changes are as you, as you start to walk or run, your variability range is very wide, is very broad. What does that mean? Well, it means you haven't really got uh, optimal control. What you're doing is you are predicting what you need to do. You're, ta you're taking an action. You're activating muscle units. You're moving motor units, you're moving forward, but your prediction isn't very accurate. So what that means is, as you go through your movement, corrective actions have to be taken as they become apparent. And what you get is you're a little bit jerky. It's like prediction up, course correction, up course correction again, up course correction. So you can maintain the integrity of a running stride, but it's in a very, if you were to do a, a profile of it, it would be very choppy, very jerky. Now, you as you gain experience, that refines. That, that jerky profile becomes smoother. Now, if you extend it into all of a sudden you are recovering from injury and there's some sensitization there, there's some doubt, there's uncertainty, your predictions again are a little um, fraught with psychologically anxiety and neurally I'm not sure how this motor unit is going to react if I ping it or if I'm going to get pain feedback. So, so that transition from smoothness to, to jerkiness, if you want to call it that, can happen across the time, the age, uh, maturity, from child to mature adult to adult in old age, where again, that jerkiness becomes more and more apparent why? Well, okay, there's noise. There may well be damage. There may well be sensitization. There may well be, you know, the gradual erosion of your capacity for motor cortex to communicate clearly with periphery, make predictions that are accurate that don't need to be course corrected in a dramatic fashion. So that bandwidth of variability applies over the lifespan, and it also applies when you go for a run, it applies over the run. If you are healthy, practiced, pain-free, confident, you will be smooth. You will have a smoother running profile. If we do a thought experiment where we get some of your genes and genetically engineer two identical TADs and they both have the exact same experience, but one is a bit more fatigued and the two of them go for a run, one will be less smooth. Or you implant some type of doubt, some type of uncertainty, some type of add a little bit of sensitization, then again, that person will be less smooth, more, more jerky. Yeah, I like this idea that you, um, 
you kind of lose your, your optimal coordination patterns when some of your, your resources are taken away, like you, you get fatigued and your energetic resources are, are, are being taken away. I play, uh, I play some squash and I know that kind of like the coordination patterns that I use when I'm tired are not the same as the ones that are available to me when I'm not tired. And that's, that's inevitably going to happen. And uh, I need to practice in that fatigue state to kind of like, I need to know how to learn how to hit the ball when my arm feels like a noodle. So isn't that part of like the coordination that you're building is like the coordination to do this when you're fatigued. No, absolutely. And you know, that is, that's a great point, but I need to treat it carefully. So bear with me. Yes. When you are fatigued, coordination deteriorates and we know that well injury will occur most often at the back end of a half or the back end of a game or back end of a long run or whatever it might be I think what's what's kind of interested me a lot over the past few years is uh, the role of uh, psychomotional processes there like your degree of confidence your degree of certainty or uncertainty in your ability to execute those movements in squash that's a factor as well um, the other thing I think that is happening in like you, you're saying you know as a, a recreational squash player but if you look at field sports where you have you know Premier League footballers or NFL uh players when they are fatigued I think their movement patterns their movement choices change as well but these are happening at such a high pace that it's not very evident they are and I think that there is a there would be a direct link to I am getting fatigued and fatigue doesn't have to be on fatigue over six weeks or over the course of a week it can be, I'm after going through a really high intensity five minutes and now I am suffering some kind of temporary fatigue and now my movement choices are changing. I'm becoming a little uncertain in my predictions. I'm, I'm narrowing both consciously and subconsciously. I'm narrowing the movements I'm going to engage in. And again, that for me is a risk factor. I'm saying for me because the evidence isn't clear on that you know with a, an academic hat on but the the evidence is starting to move very strongly in that direction when you talk about the confidence of the predictions are, are you uh, are you getting into kind of like a predictive processing type, type of a framework to understand is that the kind of confidence you're talking about like the precision weighting of the top-down predictions about incoming sensory information are is as this kind of i i think you we mentioned uh before we started recording that this is kind of your next area of interest is this are we kind of hearing a little bit about this now is that what this is yeah i i, I didn't mean to kind of implant that thought but, well, but yes it is it. i like it yeah it is but but i guess we need to be careful about confidence because it means so many things in different contexts i think there is the kind of conscious confidence which is important and there certainly is a link uh, you know, and it's been reviewed and peer-reviewed and, and, and published links with things like uh, perceived stress and injury, 
perceived fatigue and injury. So there's something there around uh, confidence in my personal confidence. How do I feel? You know what? I'm not feeling great. Oops, I'm more. I I am going to be more predisposed to injury in, in this state. And then there's the kind of predictive co- uh, processing sense of confidence where it's uh, maybe lower down the the I, it's a confidence that's more implicit that's not taught through. It's a confidence where when I get this sensation, this normal, this I, I normally get this negative sensation. When I get this, when I'm in this context and I feel like this and I do this, I get a pain, for example. That's a different type of, a different manifestation of confidence, a more precise confidence, not the kind of conscious I'm a confident per- confident person, the power of positive thinking type confidence. Yeah. It's a confidence that's some uh, very, very fine-grained uh, subconscious level where it's just, you know, you anticipate the pain before you feel the pain. You anticipate the fatigue because, oh, I have been in these situations, we're under pressure, we're goal down. Uh, you know, the person I'm marking is running rings around me. All of, I, I, I do think they can feed into one another, but that's a little bit of speculation on my part rather than hard evidence led. Yeah, yeah. So I, it kind of it's kind of an idea jumped into my head that which uh, the reason it jumped in is because I just uh, pulled my hamstring playing soccer a, a few nights ago, and um, and right before I did, I was uh, experiencing strange sensations in my, in, my, in my hamstring. And I was thinking, oh, this is kind of an unusual feeling. And like, sure enough, you know, a few few minutes later, uh, I had pulled it. And I was kind of wondering, did I pull it? Because I was, was this really kind of a tissue-based structural thing? Were those sensory signals uh, just informing me uh, that the tissues had kind of like come to their that they were fragile and that they were ready to go? Or was it the case that uh, this was kind of a failure of coordination because of my, because of I was interpreting, you know, unusual sensory signals there? Uh, I guess just when, when hamstrings go, is this a coordination problem or is this a structural problem or does it make sense to distinguish between those because they're so related? I, I have to say, and not to sit in defense, my, my bias is that it's a coordination issue. It's a failure of core. It's a coordinated failure that manifests in structural damage. But but yeah, that would be my my bias based on my experience. So when people are fatigued, so the, the reason that hamstrings are more likely to go during fatigue is the effect on coordination more than the effect on the structural integrity of, of the muscles. That would that would be my perspective. Now, there's maybe a slight little caveat to that, and that would be oh, your perspective, your 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 view of your hamstrings. If you feel, whoa, okay, my hamstring is starting to feel a bit iffy, you know, a little fatigued, or that's an unusual pain. What's your reaction? Is it? Okay. My reaction should have been to walk off the field, but it was to go sprint after the ball. <laughs> well, yeah, but the, 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 there's also something more subtle. It's, uh, okay, so this is the feedback I'm getting. 
I have a little bit of uncertainty about the state of my hamstring, that changes how you're activating around your hamstring without question. So what drive, what's driving what? Is it that change of activation? There's a little bit more tightness. The timing is a little off. Well, all of a sudden there's more mechanical stress, much more likely to pain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the feedback I was getting, it wasn't like a danger signal. It was just kind of an unusual type of a feeling. Oh, that feels kind of, that feels kind well, of. That's, I, I, I really like what you said there because, it, you know, it wasn't a danger signal. I didn't perceive it that way. I, I probably, yeah, okay. have, I, I, <laughs> yeah, the top yeah. of my brain should have, but I did not get a visceral sense of this, you're in danger here. I, I guess uh, I, I got a sense of, well, that feels a little different. <laughs> you know, yeah. like like the, the tightness feels different. It didn't feel tighter. It actually felt a little bit looser. Uh, mm. Well, it's very, it, it, there's so many avenues that you could uh, rationalize this, that it become, and, and it's all speculation. But what we do know is you're more inclined to get injured if you're tired. I would think it's also a safe bet that you're more inclined to get injured if you're anxious. Now, are you getting, because if you are more anxious about something specific, then you're going to change how you're activating around there. You're going to change how you're moving it. It'll be subtle, but all of a sudden you'll be moving out of uh, your habituated bandwidth. You'll be moving out of the kind of your zone of conditioning and comfort. If I always use my... Uh, let's call it, let's talk with a patch of muscle. If I always use the motor, my motor units in this type of way, all of a sudden now I'm tense and I'm activating a little later, a little earlier, more than usual, less than usual. That's going to throw things off. And, and I guess there's something I should have mentioned around that um, bandwidth of variability. A healthy bandwidth with the variability, it's not that it's very wide, it's not that it's very narrow. It is you access conditioned tissues, conditioned to those, that context-specific stress. So it's like you have a working population that's highly trained to handle this stress and you vary the load among that population. If all of a sudden you're fatigued and you start accessing you know, motor units or putting a little more load on a tendon here or asking a ligament to do something slightly different or any of those things, that's when you run into trouble. It's when you're outside of your uh, habituated zone where tissues are conditioned, neural structures, the signaling uh, structures and mechanisms are, are sharp, efficient. Once fatigue comes in or sensitization or legacy of prior injury, once that diminishes that and you start to take remedial action that is all of a sudden asking things that aren't prepared for that to do that job that's when you start getting into trouble or getting into more uh, high risk zones yeah so it's kind of like it's not too much and not too little you want the variability to to be able to share the load of the of the of the activity with different parts of your body but you don't want so much variability that you're sharing it with parts of your body that don't know what they're doing and they're not used to doing it this way right exactly so you know, degeneracies, options, 
it's not just a wide spectrum of options. It's conditioned options who are accustomed to this type of stress and are, are, are robust to that type of stress. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me that, uh, you know, I went out and played soccer. That was the first time I did it in, in a couple of years. And I thought, oh, I've, I'm out here. I'm, uh, you know, what do you got to do to play soccer? You got to sprint. Well, I'll go out and make sure I do so get some sprints in before I go out and play soccer and then I'll be ready to play soccer. Uh, but I wasn't, I, I never pulled a hamstring in my, in my whole life, but I wasn't, you know, giving myself the specific stress of the, of the soccer game. And as soon as I got out there, I, I kind of was realizing I wasn't all that prepared. Well, you know, it's, it's stretch, stretch and twist, deceleration. There's all kinds of things there that go well beyond the, well, I'm accustomed to sprinting. Um, but you know you're 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 not alone. The, the hamstring problem isn't solved as yet. The one thing, <laughs> the, the, the one the, the one thing you could say though is that um, yeah, I don't know what you could say actually without being ridiculously generalised. But fatigue management is obviously a big thing to do with it. Um, I I tend to have a bias towards movements that what I think of as you know enhancing coordination uh, now that could be something that's as simple as uh, single leg stabilization exercises things like that anything where you're you're you know there's there's a lot of spinal activity in terms of reflexes of firing off at different timings and different se- sequences in response to I'm slightly off balance I'm restoring that balance but it's happening at a more reflexive level. Uh, and I think things like, like that, which is critical to every, every time your foot makes contact with the ground, there's, there's huge, obviously, obviously reflex activity there. But the edge comes off reflexes with fatigue. It also comes off, the edge comes off reflexes if it's constantly sensitized. If there's been prior injury, and there's been, you know, there's been a dampening of reflexes to protect against sensitization. And that's lasted sufficiently long that, okay, well, now the edge, or sorry, now some of the neural communication systems, they're, they're not as clear as before. There's a little more noise. The signal has been received uh, not as precisely as it was. And all of a sudden, again, the wheels are just, or the edge is starting to come off your coordination. And the big question then from a, a rehabilitation condition perspective is what well, what's our theories around rebooting reflexes or recalibrating reflexes post pain injury sensitization? And we, we don't really have them in, across sports. Uh, we don't really have that in place. So again, it is something I think that should be an important feature of what we do post injury. Uh, pre, if, if we want to avoid injury, but again, we don't really think of it. You've talked before about the difference between training kind of slow reflexes and fast reflexes. Could, can you distinguish those and, and how they're different and how you might go about kind of training each? Okay, well, here's my logic, first of all, and uh, I, I, I'm not presenting this like it's a, a done deal or anything like that. This is my best perspective on it. And I'd really be interested in what others think. So any listeners, feel free to come back to me or point me in other directions because it's a topic that 
you know, I, I, is really important to me. So, like, obviously, reflexes are one thing. There's, let's break it up into two very general categorizations. Uh, slow, like long loop, fast, short loop. So the really quick ones, that in a sense are the really dumb reflexes. And it's just if this, then this, boom. And they happen really quick, you know, 50 milliseconds, whatever. Well under conscious control. And then as you go up the spine, there's slower reflexes, but they're more educated. It's not if this, it's not an on-off switch. It's in this specific context, if something like this happens and you don't tighten up this, then I'll do this. So they're more informed, more complex, more educated. But it's always struck me as they're two different things. And I think certainly in the world that, that I move in, which is the kind of high-performance sport one, we tend to do the slow reflexes pretty good, pretty well. It's, it's pretty, uh, I won't say it's pretty easy, but most sports uh, conventions will have some type of slow controlled movement drills. Now, whether people intend, intend them to or not, those type of slow movement drills where maybe you're moving slowly from one foot to, to the other, there, there's a lot of reflexive stabilization there. So if you want to recalibrate reflexes, post-pain injury sensitization, then that type of thing works. Give us some examples. Uh, give us a few examples of, of the the slow reflex training things that we're doing a good job with. Oh uh, well, once we we're doing a good job directly because we don't normally think of it in terms of I'm, I'm going to hit slow movement reflexes. But um, let me see. So if you were doing, if you get someone to balance on a single leg and cause some perturbation. So for example, the hands above their head, their head maybe they have a, a stick, you know, a dowel, a, a, a brush pole held over their head and we're perturbing them in some way. It might be you have a band around the brush pole and you're just giving it a pull or you're walking around and you're nudging them. Something relatively unexpected, but it's not in a very dynamic context. Something like that is just, you're perturbing them and then there's a whole sequence of reflexes that kick in to maintain st stability. Or it could be either on a, you know, a, a, a wobble cushion, or it could be a trampette, or anything like that where there's a constant undercurrent of, I need to stabilize, I need to stiffen. Uh, and you know, uh, how you stiffen will regulate what reflexes you prime. Do you want me to, I, I, let me just say that a different way. Uh, and I, I'm after bringing in a concept of stiffness now, and I, I probably shouldn't have, but I'm sure everyone understands what I mean. Before you make contact, you stiffen up in anticipation of the ground contact. And you do that, A, to protect, B, for movement efficiency. Because, you know, if you're rebounding, you'll want to be safe. That will be affected by your prior experience and confidence in that movement. And then you'll want to save some energy on the next step. So that, that would be the kind of tension that will dictate how, how uh, stiff you, you, your leg is or your whole, whole, whole body, whichever uh, way you want to look at it. So 
but that stiffness also kind of sets the reflexes in terms of background activa- activation, background tensions will either prime or dampen reflex activity. And that's one of the things that we learn the more we run, the more efficient we become. Why are we becoming more efficient? Yes, there's all kinds of cardiovascular adaptations, there's muscular adaptations, but there's also the under the skin coordination, there's the better placement, the better setting of stiffness of, of ankles, knees, hips, muscles. There's the recycling of energy and the dynamic interplay between muscle and tendon and how that is, uh, the timing of that and how that more refined timing is optimizing your energy efficiency. There's all these really subtle coordinative uh, interplays going on that we never see, we never really measure where we can't in a lot of contexts. And tuning the pattern of the reflexes, right? All these, all the, all the, the patterns of the reflexes, the way they all work together, are always getting tuned and refined way down there in the nervous system, so far away from our consciousness, right? Thank you. Tuning is the perfect word, and it dug me out of the hole because I don't know where I was going with that other than around in circles. <laughs> but you're always tuning them for this particular context, and the way they're tuned for slow running is not the same as the way they're tuned for fast running, or, 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 or right? Um, yes. I, well, I think... I think that there is a place for non-specific tuning. I think that, for example, if we go back to the single leg stability type drill, I would think certainly with those who uh, have been previously injured or sensitized, et cetera, et cetera, that type of specific work needs to be done I think in a lot of running cultures around the world, not all, but a lot, the belief is that, you know, just run and that will sort out all your coordination issues. And that's fine up to a point. But there are so many kind of different reflex contributions that we can't assume that they all get brought back to speed post-injury. And what I mean by this is, my perspective is after injury, you will lose some degeneracies. You will lose some options because now they are no longer easy options to take. While I was injured, while I was sensitized, I used all these other options. They're now my favorite go-to options. These options are left life fallow. Once they're left, you know, once they're not used on a regular basis, you know, it's the plasticity of disuse the edge comes off. They're a bit more costly to activate. So why would I activate them? But now it comes to the back end of a race and you want to put your foot down and all these other units that have been working their shifts are already fatigued. Signals are getting a bit noisier. They're getting a bit more erratic in their activation. You want to access these ones that the edge has been dimmed on, taken off, And now they're not as well prepared as they were because you haven't been activating them. And now all of a sudden you're going outside your your, your normal working population to access other motor units. And now you're starting to get into trouble. So so you've gotten into a narrow groove 
And if you did the just running, you'd stay within that narrow groove, which is too narrow, which is not going to take care of all of your needs. So you need to do something different. What if you did the just running to try to retrain yourself, but you run in lots of different ways. You run in different terrains. You run in with different footwear. You run uh, uphill. You run downhill. You run at different speeds. Could that could that strategy of just running be enough to retune your reflexes for the single leg stance stiffness that you need to to stay safe? Or do you need? To- <laughs> Sorry, I just had a, an invader there. Um, there's, an, there's always invaders. That's okay. Okay, so my honest answer to that is it might. My bias is I don't think it will. I think the reflexes that are especially hard to retrain are the really quick loop ones. And I think to retrain those, they have to be forced to kick in. And I think they're, they're quite hard to train. We don't do it co- conventionally. Now, I'll, I'll come back to that, but let me just loop back around to the, the other part of your question. I don't know why, if I'm not sure, I wouldn't recommend training reflexes, retraining stabilization reflexes through slow movement drills, uh, through, uh, you know, reactive type drills where there's foot contact uh, under different conditions where maybe there's uh, getting off the ground as quick as you could, landing and stabilizing on a slightly soft surface, or you wouldn't have a load of those uh, training methods in your session. And here's why I think uh, they're justified. One, it makes sense. Reflexes are so important. Sensitization will will cause some not to be used, potentially for high periods of time. How can we reboot them? These are easy ways to do it. They're safe. They don't take a lot of time. You can build them into your warm-up and cool-down drills. Why would you not do it? We can have a hypothetical argument. We can both wave our hands in the air. You say, no, they don't matter. I say, yes, they do matter. We could both put evidence to, to support each argument. What's the cost? Actually, I could infiltrate these around the training week really easy. I would also give a rationale to the athlete. Here's why I think these will work. You try them and and let's see what they feel. So there's a psychoemotional attachment. There's a a non-manipulative placebo potential action there. So risk is low, cost, cost is low. Why wouldn't you do it? Now, the fast reflex one is one I find really interesting, but there's so little research on it. And fast reflex would be, you know, it's um, it kicks in really quick. How would we train those? The only real way I can think to train those is forceful perturbation and where the person has to respond instantly or they fall out of position. The one example of this that has been studied and has been studied in international athletes, I think uh, racket sports, badminton, and the basic uh, intervention was, they were, I think they were all ACLs, uh, step off a box, maybe it was a 20 centimetre box, not very high. 
And as you're stepping off the box, you get pushed. So you do, your prediction is upset. Your prediction is thrown out the window. You're going to hit the ground in a second and you have to boom, react straight away. You have to get everything into the right shape, place, time. And then it is just a really quick boom. And that first layer of reflexes have to activate. So essentially what I'm suggesting is you're forcing your uh, short loop reflexes to kick in really quickly. And that simple intervention has been shown in, again, high level, uh, I think it was badminton or squash, but, you know, very, very dynamic sport to have a room to enhance performance in things like short sprints, post-ACL. Now, I'm not selling this as a done deal. These were small studies, limited numbers, all the usual caveats apply. And again, we're back to you could take one position, I could take another. From my perspective as a, as, a, as a coach, as a trainer, it would be what's the cost, what's the risk, what are the potential benefits? And then I make a judgment. That, so that, that uh, you know, that getting perturbed and having, having to land, the very simple act of just landing and stiffening yourself and balancing yourself when you're not exactly sure where you are, I mean, we all have that experience when we're playing a sport because you get perturbed or when you're playing with balls or funny things happen. And my experience is if I spend a little time away from playing with balls or playing with opponents or kind of like being in those reactive environments, yeah, there's kind of a slowness and a delay that kind of like appears in my movement where I don't have that kind of reactive stability uh, and I'm not as safe in, in what I'm doing. And uh, I mean, it just seems kind of common sense to me that putting yourself in those environments every once in a while, it, it activates something in you. There's a feeling that you get, uh, kind of a feeling of quickness and stability uh, that, you know, that is forced to show up when you, when you get in reactive environments. Runners, don't, runners can spend many, many years without really being in that reactive of a situation at all. Of course, any kind of a field, uh, athlete will be in it all the time. Do you think that the runners, people that are doing a sport that doesn't kind of require this kind of reactivity can benefit from these kind of perturbance type of things? I think yes, but with the caveat, I would think, and again, my bias, and I've worked with a lot of, you know, very high level endurance, sprint, athletes and injuries leave a legacy I think a career of hard training leaves a legacy I certainly if the athlete was older certainly if there's prior history of injury I would I, I would be using these interventions and I have used these interventions again I logic them I logic them out with the athlete uh, so there's that getting them on board and making sure that they understand what we're trying to do. It's so hard to measure. It's so hard to measure, but it, it kind of goes back. We're kind of looping back around to where we started with degeneracies. You, you always want to be building out options. You always want to have viable options that the athlete can rely on to or incorporate into their movement patterns because Nearly everything else they do 
you know, injuries, a history of hard training, overtraining, you know, training into fatigue, all those kind of things reduce degeneracies. So once you're getting to the back end of your career, I think it's a safe bet that you don't have the same spectrum of, of, of viable options, of advantageous options as you did at the start. And I think we need to reboot those uh, later on, regardless of the of the event or the sport. So with runners, I, I think there's often the temptation to think, well, it's a very simple activity and we do it. And I had this injury, but I know I'm fine because my running stride looks the same. But you might have totally shifted around your 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 workloads, your work durations. This short loop reflex is now not working, but you're compensating for that somewhere else. How that comp- compensation is going to manifest over time, you have no idea. It could be, you know, I'm developing a hot spot in my knee. Where did that come out of? Well, okay, you took the edge. There was an edge taken off your reflex here. There was some sensitization there. That wasn't incorporated into your rehab. That's something we need to work on and, and gradually eradicate you know, over time, that might stretch on. It might be something you need to keep uh, tipping away at in a, in a low-volume way to uh, eradicate. And and, and I, I guess, as you can sense, I'm not necessarily given a very clear, here's what you do. It's more a, a state of mind. It's more uh, being open to, okay, what might be, wrong here what can we do to enhance this what can we do to enhance this in a way that is safe doesn't take a lot of energy doesn't take a lot of time doesn't add or distort the shape add dramatically to training stress and distort the shape of the training week and can we build these in as very regular habits that we we tip away we chip away we adapt we evolve in conjunction with the athlete with coach etc etc are we are we going to be in a better place then and I think if you if you frame it like that, the answer for me is yes. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea. So let's say you want to do some perturbance training, get your fast you know loop reflexes going. You don't have someone to push you when you're getting off of a box. What are some other ways you could kind of do that on your own? I'm thinking that you could, um, uh, you know, just kind of. Uh, what about just moving around in, in a way that. Uh, where your predictions are likely to be off. You're working on your agility. You're playing with the ball. You're playing a, You're playing tennis. You're playing soccer. There's certainly plenty of times when you are needed to land and things weren't exactly as as you would thought under those uh, situations. Now those are those are you know situations where you're they're, they're chaotic and you may get injured doing those types of things. But do those kind of train the same kind of capacities you're talking about? So. I 100% get where you're coming from. Now, the only thing I'd say as kind of a, as a party pooper <laughs> is I think where they might not be adequate is, again, if it, if it is one of those very fast loop reflexes, because you're talking about complex movements, we're going to be able to compensate for that without stressing, without precisely putting that you know first layer of reflex response under pressure and that's why i think that these can often go you know they they often aren't eradicated by rehabilitation because there's no folks rehabilitation saying okay we need to specifically zoom in on that 
we need to make sure that it's a, and again, it's a very simple uh, on-off type switch, but we need to make sure that they're not building in lots of other compensation patterns here to make it look like um, they are coping with this stress when in actual fact they are coping, but they're farming they're farming out the load to, to other, other structures. Gotcha. Makes sense. What about, uh, I know Franz Bosch talks about perturbance as a way to kind of uh, train up reflexes and get this really reflexive stability. He also talks about time pressure. I think he says there's, he had three P's in trying to get this, this uh, reflexive stability going. I can't remember what the third P was. One of them was perturbance. One of them was time pressure. So for his perturbance, he might use like a, uh, like a water bag, like you're stepping down with the water bag, that gives you random perturbations that you need to stabilize when you when you step down. You might have an exercise like where you're stepping up or stepping down where there's extreme time pressure. Like you need to like hit the ground and step up onto a box as fast as possible, maybe drive your foot into the box and then get your knee up and then stick it. And he said the time pressure would have a similar effect to perturbance. What do you think about that? Okay, so I... I really like uh, Franz Bosch's work. We've presented together a number of times. We've had lots of conversations. We, you know, we, we get on really well. Um, and I think, to give him credit for way back in 2005, I was in track and field. He'd come from track and field when his first book came out, uh, the, the, the running specific book. And it was a, an absolute breakthrough in coordination training for track and field, which had been, kind of all stylized drills, you know, like do this, but a very formulaic, you hit this position, hit that position. And uh, so he revolutionized that. Uh, I would think that all the perturbation stuff, yes, it's great. For those type of stability type reflexes, yeah, that works without question. Again, and I know I'm being irritating now at this stage, I would think what isn't, catered for in those and myself and Franz had this conversation a couple of years ago is those fast loop stuff is those on off ones the perturbation stuff they're they're a little a little slower a little more um uh, complex than just the, the the very fast loop short lag time ones so I would yeah so I'd be talking you hit the ground and then there's a survival uh reflex that kicks in so and I, again I realize I'm saying this without giving you a lot of meat in the bones but the example that has been used and the only one that's been researched is you're falling and then before just before you make contact there's a perturbation and then you hit the ground so it's a it's you have to adjust there has to be a reflex adjustment immediately it's not something that there can be a, I'm thinking, I'm pre-stressing, I'm stiffening in advance. It's just that very early snap of a reflex. Well, it's really, it's a fundamental primal survival type of a situation that you're activating. I mean, falling is, is kind of one of the biggest risks to any animals, especially animals that evolved in trees and animals that are on two legs, right? So, I mean, if there's any, any time that you're going to get the fast acting stuff to to get going, it would be in a falling type situation. Well, in terms of forcing it to activate, but if you think of it, the practicality of it as a runner is that 
the way it should happen is that kicks in first, then something higher up kicks in, then something higher up, and there and there's a smooth. There's, there's like nature's innate impact handling uh, scheme, which works beautifully. Reflexes handle the things that are formulaic, and then our, you know, uh, spine brain adds on all the nuance in terms of, uh, and, and and there tends to be very little because we can run very much on. Uh, spinal and and reflex activities, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and you kind of want to drive it down to that automated level so that what's up here I can think about. Uh, okay, you know what am I doing when I'm when I'm running here? I mean, if you if, if your only thing you have to think about is how far to go or you know how, how to get back home, that's not much to think about. But you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, when you're running, you're thinking about tracking the animal, you're thinking about what you're carrying, you're thinking about whether you're getting tired. I mean, you you don't want to burden this upper area with 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 thoughts of how to move my feet. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I was amazed at, you know, when I when I was doing the the background research for for those papers you mentioned is how how tuned we are to to being runners how important it was in our evolution. And it wasn't just we evolved and then we learned to run, how we ran as precursor species shaped how we are now. It is that important. It is absolutely embedded in, you know, in every, in, in all our structures, in our brain, in how we stabilize. I, I make the point in, in one of those articles that if you think about it, it's kind of a crazy system or we put our more, most delicate organ as far away from the ground as possible, and then we jump around on one leg. Like, how does that make evolutionary sense? Uh, but it turns out it can be really, really efficient, and that gives you a selection advantage over, you know, millennia. Yeah, yeah, locomotion is the most important movement for any animal. I mean, if there's any place to to look in terms of what's the most important movement, it's got to be that, and, you know, no different for humans, and we're, we're pretty good at running. Well, I've, I've kind of kept you long enough, John. I could go for another three hours talking about this stuff, and I want to invite you back sometime for sure. But I know we said about an hour. Uh, I know you got to get going. So I'm going to uh, say thanks for talking about running and geeking out about running and how we can make it better. And uh, and I really appreciate it. What uh, where, can we, where can we find you online? What do you, what do you tell us about uh, if, if we want information about your stuff? Where do we get it? Well, first of all, just echo something I said earlier. No one has all the answers to this. I'd really be interested in informed opinion. So if anyone has any comments, criticisms, let you know. Feel free to contact me. Uh, I guess uh, online, I'm on the usual. You know, uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at simply sports uh, and you'll find me there. I have a ResearchGate page under my name, John Kiley. If anyone is interested in seeing any of those papers on running. Um, yeah, and, and, and I guess that's about it. I guess just to to maybe to to wrap up, what I would say, what would be key take homes for me is that it's not that what we traditionally do in training, be it as runners or other athletes, in terms of we do sports specific stuff, we run. Um, it's not that any, none of that is important, but in terms of coordination, if you're working with athletes or rehabilitating 
patients. I think we need to elevate how we think about coordination um, and refine how we think about it because ultimately you can have the biggest muscles in the world, but unless you can activate them at the right time in the right patterns, in the right context, they are no good to you. In, in a sense, I see coordination as the, if you like, the, the top athletic attribute because all other attributes are either activated or not activated or either wasted or amplified by your ability, the ability of your brain to accurately and efficiently control your, your body. I love it. I love it. I mean, that's, that's why I started a blog called Better Movement. That's, that's my bias as well. I'm right there with you. Well, thanks again for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Todd. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Better Movement podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe. And if you want to support the podcast, go to 